Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking on this podcast with my friend and former colleague, uh, Dr. Jolyn Taylor, who is at the uh, Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Houston. And the topic of this discussion is going to be a recent publication in the American Journal of, of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, the Great Journal. And the title of the podcast is The Rate of Venous Thromboembolism on an Enhanced Recovery Program After Gynecologic Surgery. Jolene, thank you so much for um, attending the podcast and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is uh, an incredibly important topic that applies to so many of our patients, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss it. Fantastic. And uh, Jolene, um, once again, of course, obviously, congratulations on the amount of work uh, that you have put into this project. Um, and uh, and you led uh, a group uh, from the uh, MD Anderson uh, ERAS program. And uh, full disclosure, I am also an author of this manuscript, but um, obviously uh, credit to you for, for putting this together. Um, so Jolyn, I wanted to start. Uh, we have a number of questions and uh, of course, ideally we'd like to get through all of them during the podcast, but I wanted to start by asking you and if you can discuss how frequent are venous thromboembolisms in gynecologic surgery and why you would suspect that uh, thromboembolic events uh, would be different when implementing it in an enhanced recovery program. Absolutely. So the literature suggests that the rate of venous thromboembolism among women following complex gynecologic surgery is around 1% to 17%. So risk factors for developing a venous thromboembolism include Virchow's triad of hypercoagulability, which would apply to all of our patients with a malignancy, venous stasis, and endothelial damage. Now, an ERAS program, as we all know, is the multimodal care pathway that helps patients to recover faster after surgery, including a faster return to normal ambulation. In fact, data from our institution that was previously published showed that there was a more rapid return to mild to moderate or no interference with walking compared to not using an ERAS pathway. So extrapolating from that, we theorized that early ambulation would decrease the risk of venous stasis and therefore decrease the risk of venous thromboembolism. You know, ERAS programs also strive for euvolemic fluid status, and there are some data to also suggest that significant over or under hydration could increase the risk for venous thromboembolism as well. Fantastic. So, Jolene, when um, projecting on, on the strategies for this study, um, what were the primary and the secondary objectives of the study? Yeah, the primary objective of the study was to evaluate the rate of venous thromboembolism within the first 30 days after gynecologic surgery on an ERAS pathway among our patient population. And that includes both benign and malignant indications for surgery who'd been referred to our cancer center. The secondary objective was to determine what risk factors were associated with developing a venous thromboembolism among our cohort. Yeah. And in doing that, uh, what were the inclusion and the exclusion criteria for the study? So all women who underwent open or minimally invasive gynecologic surgery 
at our institution as part of the ERAS pathway were included between the dates of November 3rd, 2014, when we launched our program, and March 31st, 2021, when we ended this study population. The exclusion criteria included women who were undergoing emergency surgery or a part of multiple surgical team cases, or if they required therapeutic anticoagulation prior to surgery, as we felt like that was a different patient population. Very well. So now, um, just uh, before we get into the main findings of the study, can you just uh, share with our audience, uh, what is the current regimen in your institution under an enhanced recovery after surgery pathway for venous thromboembolic events prophylaxis? So what we have at our institution is that all patients undergoing open surgery are recommended to receive subcutaneous heparin, 5,000 units, administered in the preoperative area prior to surgery. After surgery, patients are instructed to ambulate the same day of surgery or the first postoperative day, depends on various factors. Then upon discharge, patients with malignancy who underwent laparotomy or open surgery are prescribed venous thromboembolism prophylaxis for a total of 28 days with subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin. In this case, it was anoxaparin, 40 milligrams daily. Now, currently for our institution, this guideline has been updated to also include prophylaxis with apixaban, but for the patients included in this analysis due to when we ended data collection, only anoxaparin had been used. Now, patients undergoing minimally invasive surgery do not routinely receive subcutaneous heparin prior to surgery, nor do they receive extended postoperative prophylaxis. Next, all patients undergoing surgery are recommended to have the sequential compression devices placed during the surgery, ideally prior to induction of anesthesia. And these are to remain in use until discharge from the hospital. They also receive prophylaxis of low molecular weight heparin, anoxaparin again, uh, to be administered subcutaneously once a day while they are admitted to the hospital. Even if they underwent a minimally invasive procedure, the exceptions to this per our institutional policy are if the patient is fully ambulatory, does not have a diagnosis of malignancy, and is anticipated to have a length of stay of less than 48 hours. One final note on this, Per our institutional algorithm, if the BMI of the patient is over 40, then that anoxaparin dosing does increase to 40 milligrams twice daily. Excellent. Very well. So um, let's get to the main findings of the study before we move on to additional uh, questions. Uh, quite an undertaking, as I mentioned, lots of patients, 3,329 patients. What are the highlights of the study? So we were excited to find that the overall incidence of venous thromboembolism among all of our, all of our patients was 0.6%. Among patients undergoing open surgery, the venous thromboembolism rate was 1.1%. And for those patients undergoing minimally invasive surgery, the rate was 0.3%. As you mentioned, that included all 3,329 patients in the study. Uh, we also looked at you know the breakdown between patients who had open laparotomy and um, laparoscopic surgery, and we broke it down in different ways between patients having a diagnosis of malignancy versus benign disease and borderline as well. But the take-home 
rates was overall among everyone, it was 0.6%. Fantastic. And uh, really sets a standard moving forward as to what the, the anticipated benchmark uh, should be. Um, but uh, Jolene, one of the questions that uh, we had also was, um, as with any enhanced recovery program is compliance. Um, so particularly on this topic, uh, what was the compliance rate with standard prophylaxis regimen, as you stated, uh, that is used in your institution for, for these patients? And I think this is such an incredibly important question because one, we need to see what the compliance data was to believe the outcome. And also speaks to how easy is it to implement something like this at another institution. So patients who underwent laparotomy received our standard prophylaxis with subcutaneous heparin prophylaxis prior to surgery, 94.3% of the time. Patients who underwent minimally invasive surgery had subcutaneous heparin omitted 92.2% of the time. And we found that the patients who were not compliant, typically it was because of an unanticipated conversion from minimally invasive to laparotomy. That was why the laparotomy patients did not receive the standard prophylaxis. And then in the other direction, those patients who did receive prophylaxis in the minimally invasive group, from the documentation and discussions with the teams, it appeared they had a high risk of conversion. So they were anticipating needing to convert to an open procedure. So they went ahead and provided the open prophylaxis for those groups. Excellent. Um, so now we'll get into some of the questions from the fellows. This first question is from Giuseppe Caruso in Italy. And he asked, the rate of 30-day postoperative venous thromboembolism among patients with a gynecologic malignancy, this study was lower than previously reported in the literature. I believe you stated in the beginning of the podcast that it was anywhere between 1% and 17%. So his question is, how do the authors explain this? What is the strength of an ERAS protocol that leads to these results? While we have to acknowledge that this analysis was not constructed in a way to definitively answer this question, to me, the lower rate of venous thromboembolism may be due at least in part to these patients being on an ERAS protocol. As we mentioned before, the ERAS protocol assists patients in returning to normal levels of ambulation as soon as possible, which should decrease the risk of venous stasis. And then ERAS protocols also strive for a euvolemic state, which there are data to suggest really helps to avoid other risk factors like endothelial damage for forming venous thromboembolisms. So mm -hmm. while we can't definitively answer that, that with this study alone, I do think it's really thought provoking. And I think that it, it speaks to a strength of the ERAS protocol. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these two questions come from Matt Weger. He's in at the University of Wisconsin. And first question, he says, the rates of venous thromboembolism um, perioperatively continue to fall from historically reported metrics as surgeries become less invasive and perioperative paradigms like ERAS continue to be implemented. As these events become rarer, it becomes more challenging to study the risk mitigation strategies. Do the authors suggest any means or methods to continue the evaluation of venous thromboembolic event mitigation as this becomes a rarer and rarer event with contemporary practices like ERAS? 
So I believe it will become increasingly important to find ways to risk stratify patients in order to focus on the highest risk groups. When we're doing some of these studies and even a limitation to our own was that the total number of events was low, which is a great thing. But it does mean that when we're thinking about studying this outcome, we wanna find ways to risk stratify and find the highest risk groups. You know, and our study suggests what is possible on an ERAS protocol with a standardized protocol for venous thromboembolism prophylaxis that only distinguishes between open and minimally invasive cases. I would love to see the next step to incorporate a scoring system to help with risk stratification. And I think further research needs to be done to assess if additional interventions can further lower the rate of venous thromboembolism while still being safe and not having increased side effects such as bleeding risk for other patients. In terms of you know, what other methods could we do to try to look at this? I think that's a great question for how to leverage larger data sets, to be smart about how we use our electronic medical record even to be able to discreetly pull out data related to venous thromboembolism. And I think as that evolves and as different monitoring system evolves, hopefully there'll be more opportunity for even larger data sets than you need and multi-institutional ones that really will have the ability to drill down to different high-risk subsets. Right. Um, the, his second question is related to time in the OR. He asks, operative time in urinary variant analyses is described as a risk factor for venous thromboembolic events, consistent with prior research in many gynecologic cancers and surgical specialties. Is there a time threshold or cutoff the authors would consider when trying to determine the need for extended prophylaxis after surgery. And this question as well, I think, goes along with what I believe could be our next steps. Currently, we do not alter at our institution the standard prophylaxis based on surgical time. In our data set, what we did was we dichotomized the surgical time based on the median length of surgery, which amongst our data set was three hours. Longer than three hours was considered a prolonged surgical time. And this is where some of the existing scoring systems, such as the Caprini score, may need to be tailored to a specific patient population or even types of surgical procedures, because all of our surgeries lasted over the allotted time period for that scoring system when you include the anesthesia time. So it really speaks to a need that we have to better understand you know, what is the right cutoff for a high-risk group when we're looking at different types of surgical procedures. Excellent. Um, two of our fellows had some questions regarding the minimally invasive approach and, and prophylaxis related to that, Guido Valsaki and Jessica Mauro. They ask in, in the conclusions section, it says the use of extended prophylaxis after surgery can be considered for minimally invasive surgery depending on patient risk factors. Since none of the patients who underwent minimally invasive surgery in this study received extended prophylaxis, in which scenario would you consider the use of extended prophylaxis in minimally invasive surgery? They go on to ask, what about for nodal staging? or even for patients who might undergo a pelvic exenteration by a minimally invasive approach. Yeah, and 
for those examples I gave, I can speak to our data set did include patients undergoing nodal staging by a minimally invasive approach, but we did not have patients undergoing minimally invasive pelvic exenteration. And this is where we want to be careful with how we interpret and extrapolate from our data. Our data strongly suggest that the rate of venous thromboembolism remains acceptably low without preoperative heparin prophylaxis or without extended prophylaxis. But we as the authors want to acknowledge that this is one study and it was not powered to answer the question of whether or not some patients would benefit from more pharmacologic intervention or not. So for our data and our patient population, we feel comfortable at our institution looking at this data and saying that it's the right choice for our patients. But we do want to acknowledge that it's not all encompassing and that this is, is one institutional study. And I think I'd love to see it broaden and I'd love to see other disease sites weigh in to see if we can make a change in the different guidelines, such as success guidelines to better answer that. Excellent. Um, now, Jolene, this question comes from Luigi Davitis. And I think it's an important question. He asks, in the cohort with a thromboembolic event, 33% were Black women versus 11% in the cohort without a thromboembolic event. Would you suggest different antithrombotic prophylaxis in Black women, even if they undergo minimally invasive surgery or surgery for benign indications? And I completely agree that when you see a difference that's striking, it's something that needs to be followed up and better understood. You know, due to the limitations of how robust of a statistical analysis we could do with our data set, not because of the total number of patients, but because of the low number of events, the low number of patients who developed venous thromboembolism, our conclusions on whether or not there was a, a higher risk of being a Black race can really only be considered hypothesis generating. And we can't say more than that. I agree that this absolutely needs to be assessed and considered if it should be included in other risk models to try to make sure that we're doing the best we can for patients that might be at higher risk. Unfortunately, this study wasn't powered to really answer that adequately. But as I said before, I think it's hypothesis generating. And again, if we can find the larger data set, I think we could really try to hone in on that. Yeah, definitely. Opportunities for future studies. Um, this question comes from Jorge Hegel in Venezuela. And he asks, in this large prospective data, have you considered analyzing each type of cancers separately to determine if there are differences in risk group, factors, stage of disease, comorbidities? Absolutely. It's like Jorge is reading my mind of what I would love to see next. <laughs> Unfortunately, similar to the last excellent question, it's about the statistical power. And as you start to look at different subgroups, you lose more and more of that power. So for our current data set, we weren't able to get into that level of detail with any kind of confidence to make a meaningful conclusion of whether or not different disease sites or stages within a disease site would warrant different approaches for prophylaxis. Very well. Um, now, this question comes from uh, Seda Sahin Akar in uh, Turkey, and she's interested in patients who had a previous history of a thromboembolic event. She says, how do you manage patients who had previous venous thromboembolic history 
Did any patient in the thromboembolism group in your study have a history of a prior event? Excellent question that we see so often in our patient population for the various risk factors that bring them to us. So for our analysis, any patient currently receiving therapeutic anticoagulation for a known venous thromboembolism were excluded from this analysis. We did not, however, exclude patients with a prior history of venous thromboembolism if they did not require continued anticoagulation. None of the patients who developed venous thromboembolism during this time period had a prior history of venous thromboembolism. For patients with a prior history of thromboembolism undergoing surgery, our practice is that we follow the standard algorithm for either open or MIS surgery unless they are still requiring anticoagulation of some form or they're under the care of a hematologist and that specialist recommends a different approach. Now, uh, Jessica Mauro uh, is asking about risk evaluation. Um, she asks, according to the author's opinion, should thrombotic risk evaluation and heparin dose calculation be done based on the patient's weight or considering her BMI? And our institutional alg algorithm does alter the dose of prophylaxis based on BNI currently. I think it's another good question for these risk models going forward of whether or not we should have both. There'd be a lot of correlation between the two, but if there's a certain threshold of kilogram that no matter what the overall BMI is really should push us to be more concerned, I believe is an unanswered question that I haven't seen sufficient data to feel confident in an answer. We currently do dose adjust for BMI though. Yeah. And uh, Jolene, you, you mentioned that uh, not as part of the study, but uh, that the use of um, direct oral anticoagulants. This next question uh, comes from uh, Guido Balsaki in Argentina. And he asked, although it's not an objective of your study, what are your thoughts about the use of direct oral anticoagulants such as apixaban for extended post-operative venous thromboembolic event uh, prophylaxis? So we here at my institution are very supportive of this, and we feel that there are adequate published data to suggest it is as effective and safe as low molecular weight heparin. In fact, currently, as I referenced earlier, we've adopted apixaban as an alternative to anoxaparin for extended prophylaxis for patients eligible by either their choice, insurance, or other medical comorbidities. For this analysis, based on the timing of when we made that change, they were not included in this analysis, but as an institution, we have adopted that. Excellent. Now, Jillian, um, let's talk about what are some of the limitations you see in this study. And you previously talked a little bit about um, certain variables that couldn't be evaluated due to event rates, but what, what would you see are, as a, some of the, the limitations that should be highlighted to our audience? Absolutely. In addition to the limitations we discussed about with a low event rate, we really can't draw too many conclusions that have a high level of confidence about risk factors or inferring a lot from those outcomes. The other challenges that I think we really should acknowledge are that we only included those patients with venous thromboembolism who were found due to symptoms or through imaging needed for their treatment planning in patients who were otherwise asymptomatic. And the breakdown was close to 50-50. 
We felt that this was a reasonable approach because performing routine imaging to evaluate for venous thromboembolism was not cost-effective given the low anticipated rate of incidence. But this may underreport the true incidence of venous thromboembolism, and we want to acknowledge that. In addition, we also had a higher proportion of patients with cancer than the average gynecologic practice. And this could be seen either as a limitation or a benefit, depending on where you practice and, and what your perspective is. And then finally, as mentioned before, that we had a total number of patients that was very high, you know, the lone number of events really limits our ability to take it to that next step, like we said. Um, and I really look forward to an opportunity to see where this can go next and to hopefully collaborate with other groups too to expand it. Very well. Uh, Jolene, one last question. This one comes from uh, Luigi Davitis. And, and I think he, he wants to obviously take advantage of uh, having you uh, as uh, discussing in this podcast uh, where we see the great benefit that an implementation of an enhanced recovery program has at many levels. Uh, you've shown it here in this in this manuscript uh, as it pertains to thromboembolic events. But his question is more general. He says, uh, you know, certainly these results add to the large body of literature on the benefits of ERAS. It is obviously important. However, what are your suggestions as an expert in enhanced recovery on how to implement it in hospitals where it is not yet so? And what are, what would you say are three interventions in an ERAS program that you consider are the highlights of a program? It's such a challenging question because on the one hand, it's enormous. And how do you go about implementation science of an enhanced recovery program? So I would suggest first is obtaining buy-in from all the teams that you need. Remembering an ERAS and enhanced recovery is multimodal and not just the different ways that you give medications, but just some multidisciplinary care that's given. You need buy-in from the surgical teams, anesthesiologists, inpatients, clinical teams, and the clinic, pharmacy, and nutrition. So start by a lot of information and cross-communication about what are the goals and the concerns. And then if I had to narrow down ERAS to three interventions, I think the three general categories that I would focus on would be a multimodal pain management system during and after surgery, encouraging early, early ambulation and return to the usual state of health. And that includes the time in the hospital and afterwards. And then careful fluid management with the goal of euvolemia. You know, so many other aspects of, of ERAS that are really exciting, but I think as a, a first pass, if you want to start with three, those are the three that came to my mind to focus on. Jolene, as always, it's such a pleasure speaking with you. I always learn so much after uh, discussing these topics with you. Um, I want to thank you for accepting our invitation to join the podcast. Uh, I want to congratulate you again on this uh, achievement and uh, congratulate the, the rest of the Enhanced Recovery Group at, uh, at MD Anderson. It is always uh, such a pleasure and uh, we hope you come back to uh, another podcast soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.